How is everyone? Good. All right. Let's turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 23. And he said to all, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would continue to be with us. We thank you that you've gifted musicians that can lead us in worshiping you. We thank you, Lord, that we can um, hear your word. And so I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, with ears to hear, Lord, that we would receive your word and it would be richly implanted in our souls, God, that it would bear much fruit. And we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth across this country and across this world, Lord, to touch people's lives, to change them, to regenerate them. We ask that you would use your spirit powerfully with your words, God, to do your work. We thank you for the privilege of being your children. We thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you, Lord. And we pray for wisdom from on high to live rightly for you and your glory. Amen. Last time, we looked at what a disciple is and how it differs from a convert. And a, di a disciple is two things. It's a learner and a follower. And a disciple wants to pursue Jesus. Uh, he takes an active role in his faith, and his walk with the Lord is something that he takes serious. It's not just an add-on to his life, but it's a central thing of who he is. This differs from a convert. Well, do you want to be a disciple? If you do, Jesus makes it really clear right here what the requirements are to be a disciple. There's nothing hidden. It's pretty straightforward. There's no doubt of what's being said. And there's nothing cryptic or hidden in his words. Here's the thing. The path of discipleship now has the bar set high by Jesus. So we're going to look at a few of these um, things that Jesus mentions in the passage to learn about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We're going to learn three things. <clears throat> the first is this. Um, when we talk about discipleship and Jesus setting the bar, one of the things we need to be careful of what um, some people call like an easy believism. An easy believism. Uh, it's just like believe and then act as you will. So you can, as long as there's some kind of, and really what that ends up being, and we've talked about it before, is that's a mental, it's really just ment a mental assent. You can mentally assent to the truthfulness um, but there's really no trust. And so since there's no trust, it really doesn't make a difference 
in your life. It's just easy believism, and people end up abusing grace and using it as a license to sin, as a license to do whatever they want. So some people have called that easy believism. Some people call it cheap grace. Uh, they use it for doing all sorts of things. But if you look in Romans, because I want you all to see this, uh, look at what Paul says when he's addressing this situation. Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul is really addressing that same idea. Hey, um, since we're under grace and not under law, I mean, we can, just, can we just do what we want? Should we just do that? We just have a license to do whatever we want? And he's like, by no means. How can... I mean, how can we even do that? How can we even think of doing that? If we've died to sin, how can we live in it? Maybe contrary to nature. So he addresses it and says, no, that, that, that doesn't make sense. That's not, even, that's not even really possible as a follower of Jesus. And a follower of Jesus is, is simply that, a follower. He follows. That's what the last part of verse 23 says, follow me. So a follower follows, and there is a leader, and it's not the follower. Everyone say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, listen, too many people try to wrestle the, the reins away from Jesus. Have you ever tried to do that? Okay, I'm the only one, that's all right. <clears throat> we follow Jesus. And here's the thing, he speaks, and we listen, and we follow. He goes, and we see, and we follow where he goes. We follow. Listen, when, you guys read your Bibles, right? Okay, good, awesome. Um, if you don't, you should, because there's some amazing stuff in here, right? Beautiful, amazing stuff. Some of it's scary, too. Uh, but Jesus, one of the things, if you get into the Gospels and you're reading it, and you're really reading it, like Jesus doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't mince words. And a lot of times, if you wanted to characterize like how Jesus treats different people, like to the hurting and those that are coming to him and see their need, like he's very kind and very gracious, right? To those that need a hard word, he will deliver the hard word. To those that need a kind word, he will deliver a kind word. To those that are hard-headed, he's, he's very blunt. To those that are um, hurting, he, he will get even down in the sand with them, right? But um, even to his followers, he considered them kind of dense. Are you so hard of hearing? He addressed them at times. And in one section, look at John chapter 6. I was reading through this the other day, and it caught my attention. This is right after the section where Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And I'm, he's pretty straightforward with them. And he doesn't mince words. Uh, he says in verse 53, Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
Now, he's, he's referencing his death. <clears throat> he says, as the fa- living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then it says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. But then check out what it says in verse 60 here. When many of his disciples heard it, now notice the word there, disciples, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about being a disciple. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And then verse 63, which really sheds light on everything he just said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So they're having trouble, the disciples are, with this saying, this teaching that he just gave them. And then he's looking, look what verse 66 says. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's one of the saddest verses in the Bible to me. Many disciples stopped following him. So some had started on the path of discipleship, and they stopped. I mean, there's Jesus, like, in the flesh, and they're following after him, and he gives this hard, hard teaching, and they stop. But <clears throat> what, what does Jesus do here? You ever thought about that? Oh, hey, guys, come back, come back. This is what I really meant. No, he doesn't do that. Now let me, let me explain, don't leave. No, he doesn't do that. He lets this hard saying sit with them. And some of them wouldn't accept it. Rejecting his teaching, listen to this, rejecting his teaching was a rejection of him. So they walked away. Here's the thing for us. There's, Jesus got some tough teachings for us too. We've we got to receive those teachings. If Jesus is our Savior, then what he says goes. Amen? We might not like it. It might rub us the wrong way. It might be tough to swallow. But he calls the shots. All right? It's his truth. It's not my truth. It's not your truth. All right? I've got my truth. You've got your truth. No. If anyone has their truth, it's Jesus. Okay? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he is the truth. And he told us that he was the truth. So what he says go, we listen, we hear, we observe, we see, we follow. Listen, our discipleship, if we're going to be true disciples, it's costly. Discipleship is costly. Maybe some of you heard last Easter Sunday of the churches in the country of Sri Lanka that were attacked. Um, It was a coordinated attack, and they've even admitted, uh, by Muslim terrorists. 
and the, the count has kind of been all over the place, um, but they've definitely confirmed over 250 murdered. 250. And what was, <clears throat> to me, a number of things were sad about the whole thing, that our brothers and sisters in the faith were martyred on the day that we were all celebrating the resurrection. Uh, but one of the things that was uh, frustrating was the way that some politicians referred to, to the whole, to the people that were murdered, to the people that were martyred. And I don't know if you heard about this. Um, here's what one person, I'm not going to say their name. You could probably just Google the quote and find it real quick. But they said this. I want you to listen carefully. The attacks on tourists and Easter worshipers in Sri Lanka are an attack on humanity. Okay, Easter worshipers? You can't use the term Christian? Easter worshipers. Another politician <clears throat> picked up on it. On this holy weekend for many faiths, um, holy weekend for many faiths? And last time I checked, the only faith celebrating Easter were Christians. Okay? And there wasn't anything going on last weekend for other faiths. On this holy weekend for many faiths, we must stand united against hatred and violence. I am praying for everyone affected by today's horrific attacks on Easter worshipers. Like, what in the world? <clears throat> I mean, do we refer to Jews as Hanukkah celebrators? Right? Or Muslims as Ramadan worshipers? I mean, of course not. I mean, they can't even use the term Christian. You, know, you want to know why? At least why I think? I mean, because you can't paint a narrative in America that Christians are the powerful, bigoted, anti-everything who persecute everyone and then talk about how Christians are being persecuted and martyred for their faith. It's kind of hard for those narratives to go together. So just take out the word Christian and, and you're good to go. I mean, those people were martyred for their faith. Look at Revelation 12 because it reminds me of what it says in Revelation Start in verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Isn't that a good verse? And that was true of those believers in Sri Lanka. May it be true of us, should the Lord call us to that. Look at 1 John 3. It has a similar idea. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. All right, that's the ultimate act of self-denial, to die for someone else. Let's talk about our children for a second, though, when we're talking about self-denial. Um, here's a question for the parents, okay? What are we doing to ensure that our children belong to Jesus and flourish? Whose role is it to instruct children? The parents. It's not a trick question. Right? The church comes alongside the parents to aid, to complement, 
them in what they're doing, but it's the church, uh, it's the parents' primary role. Church is, it, it takes a secondary in that regard. But here's the thing, parents. Um, if you're going to preach it, you better live it. Because one of the worst things is for a parent to preach Christ and then live as if Christ isn't crucified in their own lives. So I'm not talking perfection, but I am talking humility. And I'm not talking perfection, but I am talking forgiveness. And I'm not talking perfection, but I'm talking grace. And I'm not talking perfection, but I'm talking the fruit of the Spirit. Those things should be on display abundantly in our lives and shown to our kids overwhelmingly. Humility, forgiveness, grace, the fruit of the Spirit. Think about, uh, you know, you're watching TV, some TV commercial pops on, and they want to sell you, like, some great workout DVD. I mean, who do they show you? They show you overweight people? No. I mean, they show you people who are fit. All right, do they show you someone with flabby muscles? No, they show you people who they have like nice, big, toned muscles. I mean, I'm getting phone calls from them all the time, okay? <laughs> they want to use me for the before picture. <laughs> no, why though? Because they want you to believe the DVD workout works. And showing you people that don't have muscles seems counterintuitive. Listen, if someone tells me about this great power pill that changes you completely and then it appears as if they've never swallowed the pill, then why would I want to swallow it? Right? But that's what we're saying with the gospel. So if we're going to want our kids to take it, we need to make sure we've taken it ourselves. There was a a quote the other day. It said this. It said, there's a point... 0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. There is a 100% certainty that your child will stand before Jesus. What are you teaching your children? And I'm not just talking like toddlers or teens. Some of you have older children. Like, pray for them. Pray for them. It doesn't matter how old they are. Actually, all of us are children, right? you got parents. You're a child. So pray for them. You know, the great church father, Augustine, attributes his salvation to his mom's fervent prayers. And there's, there's somewhat of a famous story where she's just crying and crying and crying, and the pastor is like, as many tears as you've shed, the Lord has heard your prayers and surely will hear them. And Augustine ended up being one of the greatest theologians the church has ever had. Uh, Same with me. I stand here in large part due to my mom's faithful prayers. Um, If anyone could be prayed into the kingdom, it was probably me. She was very faithful in praying. If the Lord hears prayer which he does, then we need to utilize it. And we should utilize it more. Let's not presume upon God regarding the souls of our children. All right? Eternity is forever. And what's important to us, 
what's important to us, not what we say is important, but what really is important to us will be apparent to them. Even if we don't think it's important, mentally, if our lives show it's important, they will know it. We might not want it to be important to them, but they'll see by the way we live that it is important. Let's talk about our parents for a second. How do we show our parents the beauty and glory of the gospel if they don't know the Lord? Any of you have unsaved parents? Maybe some of you. Well, what does it look like for us when we're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 ministering to them? Time and time and time again, I shared with my dad different aspects of the gospel, the straight-up gospel, shared and shared and shared. And he was not interested. You know what he remarked a number of times? Um, what you have is different. This is what he said to me. What you have is, is different than what I have. He noticed there was a clear distinction between us. He claimed to be a believer, but he saw there was a major difference. And it took God taking away his health and his money to really get his attention. And God loved him enough to do that. And God used his numerous strokes as the catalyst to get him serious about his spiritual condition. And God was gracious enough, praise the Lord, to save my dad, uh, which he did. And we were privileged to have him live with us the last few years of his life. But we have to model well the gospel for our children, but also for our parents. And here's the thing. Our response to the gospel, is, it's not like a one-time decision. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. Like, that's the start. Um, a lot of people think it's like the end of the decision. It's like the end. They, they made the decision and it's over. No, that's like the start of the journey, right? When you get in your car and you're taking a road trip and, and you turn the key and, the, I mean, you start, you're like, man, you turn onto the highway, I mean, you're just beginning your journey. You made the decision to get in the car, start it up and go, but you're just beginning. So we need to make sure that with, with us, first and foremost, then with our kids, we can't pass on what we ourselves don't have. We need to make sure that we're walking the gospel out, that we are being faithful with it. And we have to be careful with our kids to emphasize to them, yes, there is an initial point of conversion. God regenerates them. But then begins the journey. Then begins the race. Think about, think about it like this. Think of like a young man trying to woo a young lady. Right after he gets the first date, I mean, he just doesn't stop thinking he's good to go and the wedding's next week. I mean, he keeps wooing, right? <clears throat> he wants her to see how amazing he is. And it works, right? <laughs> Sometimes. And we need to show our kids how amazing God is and how sweet the gospel is and how awesome Christ is. And so many verbs in the New Testament, they show ongoing action. We're commanded to do things, but it's not like, hey, do this once. I mean, if you think of some of the commands, 
They usually have like an ongoing action attached to them, even the Great Commission. It wasn't just like, oh, go. Oh, hey, I went on that mission trip three years ago. I'm good, I went. No, it's like, go and keep going. Even in uh, Matthew 7, it says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. The idea there is ask and keep asking. Okay, you just, don't just ask once. The idea there is ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. So it, it, in another way, it's like a marriage covenant. Like, was it a one-time thing? Well, I mean, there was a time where you know, you're on the altar and you said I do and your spouse said I do. Um, but you've continued in that marriage covenant, right? Daily. And you said, I do, until death do us part. It's, it's daily. And our discipleship is daily. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. That's the word he uses there. <clears throat> and listen, I understand for some, marriage is a cross that you have to pick up daily. <clears throat> and we're praying for those marriages but we have to pick up our cross. Think about that. It's hard for us to imagine because a lot of us have heard this verse so often. We've heard this verse. And we just, oh, pick up the cross. Yeah, pick up the cross. Pick up the cross. Um, <clears throat> it's really, I mean, we have to think of it. I mean, it's like Jesus is saying, like, climb on the gallows daily to be hanged. Get into the gas chamber daily. I mean, that kind of catches you off guard a little bit. But that's the point. You know, when Jesus was like, take up the cross daily, it's not like they just walked around back then talking about taking up their cross. Like, that was the worst possible form of execution and punishment you could receive. And Jesus was like, that's what discipleship is with me. Wow. Man, that's setting the bar pretty high. So Jesus had in mind this near impossible task. Take up the cross. Not just pick up the cross. Pick it up daily. You know, he's not saying, oh, take up that old little cross, right? I got a cross around my neck and one hanging in my house and me and Jesus are good. No, it's like taking up the cross, right? That was the death penalty. So Jesus has in mind here the hardest, almost near impossible task he could imagine asking you to do. And it wasn't just like, oh, you know, less video games, no more junk on the internet, not as much Netflix. That's my cross. No, I mean, he didn't have in mind some challenging situation even that we encounter sometimes, like with neighbors that are rude, family members that are challenging. I mean, Jesus had both of those, right? It's one thing to do something almost impossible, some gargantuan task once, but to do it daily. And that's the requirement he puts before us to be a disciple. If we try to do this, we'll wear ourselves out trying. We can't do it alone. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1. Here's what he says. Paul speaking here to the Thessalonians. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here he's saying like discipleship, right? It's imitation. That's awesome. That's a beautiful word there. Imitators of us. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So in much affliction, what were they doing? That was their cross. Every day, daily affliction. And what happens? They're still imitating Jesus. They're still walking after him. So much so that the word spreads. The word spreads. And it says, what does it say? They're an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, those aren't like little tiny little like towns. Those are giant regions in the New Testament. The word had spread because of their faithfulness and their discipleship of Jesus, of being a follower of Jesus, of imitating him. The word spread. And it was in much affliction. And then notice this, it's very important, with the joy, verse 6, of the Holy Spirit. And all that going on, the daily cross, there's joy. There's joy. Where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit himself. In a situation like that, it can only come from the Spirit himself. Look at Romans chapter 15. Some of you need to underline this verse. It says, May the God of hope, I'm in verse 13, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. All right, who's filling you with joy and peace? God. All right, you guys can all talk, it's all right. Go on. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. All right, the God of hope fills us with joy and peace. How does he do it? It says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's working. What's the result? We, we abound in hope. The God of hope fills us by his Spirit, and we abound in hope. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So here Paul's saying, look, I'm not like the greatest orator. I'm not the greatest speaker. And when I was with you, I could have tried to use fancy words. I could have tried to convince you with all the rhetoric of the day. Some of the rhetoricians back then, the orators, prided themselves, kind of like attorneys today, in being able to take any position, even if they disagreed with it, and convincing people that that was the right position. And he's saying, look, I knew nothing among you except Christ. And him crucified. That was the message that rang out for me time and time again. And how was I with you? Weakness, fear, much trembling. That's Paul without the Spirit. Then he says, My message and my speech were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. All right, so I mean, we're sharing with people, we're talking with people, like we can try to have all the greatest, clever replies and arguments. The Spirit has to be there. It has to be the Spirit's words. It has to be the Spirit's power. 
Look, look what he says in verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't know about you, but I want my faith to rest in the power of God, right? Not in, in men's wisdom. So we've got to be empowered by the Spirit. One more verse, Ephesians chapter 3. Let's start in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. All right, did you catch that? Now, what is he doing it according to? I think this is kind of neat because Ephesians is all about the riches that we have in Christ. The riches of his glory. You could say his glorious riches if you wanted to. That he may grant you to be strengthened. So he's granting it to us. He's granting it. He's giving it to us. He's handing it to us. That you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. A lot of times that power and spirit, as we've seen a couple verses here, I mean, they go hand in hand. Sometimes it just talks about power. Sometimes it talks about the spirit. Sometimes it talks about both, but that's the idea. It's like the spirit, who's powerful, is the one who does this. So we need the spirit to empower us for the task of following Jesus. So we, we, need, we, need, we need the Lord, amen? We need him. And we don't just check into Christianity whenever we feel like it. All right, it's not a weekly thing. It's not a Sunday thing. It's a daily thing. And discipleship is costly. It is daily. And guess what else it is? It's lowly. You could say servant-like. I mean, think about what life looked like if you were a disciple of Jesus for the three years he was on the earth. Right? Their riches were abounding. No. Luxurious living, not. Clothes fit for a king. I mean, come on. You're walking with Jesus. Here's what it says in Luke 9, 58. Jesus is, is answering someone. It says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's what discipleship looked like for the disciples. There's an Instagram account that um, basically all it does, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's sad. It finds pastors that are wearing really expensive clothes, like ostentatious, out-of-this-world, pricey clothes. Um, and really, it's kind of ironic, because all it does is go to their Instagram and just take their photos and then paste it on to this Instagram account, and then it finds the cost of whatever that outrageous, outlandish item is. So you'll have like a pastor as he's preaching, sadly, and, and then they'll show his, his shoes, and then they'll show like with his Nike shoes, and then they'll show the, a, a snapshot of the Nike you know, website with the price of the shoes, and it's like $800 or something like that. You know, or to show like, you know, he's got his, his arm out or something. You can see, his, I don't even have a watch, but he's got his watch. And then it'll show the website of how much, 
you know, the watch costs like $3,000. And it's really, I mean, it's sad because these, these men who call themselves men of God are, are spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars on their outfit. Obviously, they have something majorly upside down with their stewardship. Listen, um, possessions are temporary. And, and we shouldn't be defined by our possessions, including what we wear. But possessions are temporary, and we need to view them that way. And in verse 25, look back at Luke. In verse 25, he says, What, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Listen, the richest believer in the world enters heaven with the same amount that the poorest believer in the world does. You hearing me? The richest believer in the world enters heaven with the same amount the poorest believer in the world does. You can't take it with you. And it does you no good when you die. That's why Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Listen, you don't want to get to heaven and find out you're bankrupt. Right? Lay up for yourselves treasure. You should get there. And because you've laid them up here for heaven, it's going to be there. And God's like, you know, I just think sometimes, at least for me, he's like, I bless you with a first world country to live in, a great area to live in, an upbringing that allowed you to flourish, and, and what's the gratitude that you show me? Like, how do you use the blessings that I give you? You spend it all on your lifestyle, all on you? I mean, that's not what Christ calls us to. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Really, it comes down to this. Will we get in the trenches? Will we serve others who maybe don't even deserve to be served? Will we be waited on more than we wait on others? Or will we wait on others more than we're waited on? Look at John 13. I'm going to wrap up with this. It says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This task that Jesus takes upon himself was literally reserved for the lowest servant back then. All right? I mean, think about that. Like washing people's dirty, nasty feet. <clears throat> Some people got problems with feet. And here Jesus is touching them and washing them. He took the lowliest task onto himself. And think about that. 
Hours before he's betrayed. Hours before the disciples desert him. Hours before his great time of need. What is he doing? He's serving others. But how is he serving them? With the lowliest task. He's washing the disciples' feet. They all should have been lining up to wash his feet, right? What did he say? The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. I mean, if everyone did this, I mean, consider that. If everyone did this, like, what would our churches look like? If we were willing to do the lowliest tasks, serve others, what would our communities look like? Y'all want a challenge? Y'all want a challenge? <clears throat> You're like, yeah, we want a challenge. We just might not do it. <laughs> Here's my challenge. I want you to think of a lowly task that you could do for a family member and do it. Then I want you to think of a lowly task you do for a neighbor and do it. I'm be- hey, I'm being nice. I didn't say lowliest task, but I did say lowly task. So a lowly task for your neighbor. And then I want you to think of a lowly task you could do for someone at this church and do it. When I lived, uh, when Andrew and I lived at our uh, first house, I was trying to tackle this job on my car that I was in over my head. Um, And I had the the part out, was messing around. I I don't know how long I'd already been out there. We hadn't lived there very long. Um, But my neighbor, her son, came over. He was probably about, I don't know, 20, 25 at the time. And, I mean, he didn't even ask any questions. And he just, he just helped me. He did the job, honestly. I'd probably still be there working on the car if it wasn't for him. But he, I mean, he just jumped in and he did, I mean, he was covered in grease and gunk and he was all nasty. And this guy was like the most foul-mouthed, hard-headed, always getting into trouble guy. But you know that day, like he showed that he cared about me. And he was a good friend. He got into the trenches and did a lowly task. We do things like that to serve others and to show them that we care about them. We do those things to shine at Jesus on them. We do those things to be a witness. All right, you do those things because you want to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He got down on his hands and knees and served others. And when I first got into the ministry and was serving at a youth ministry under Teens for Christ and Tim Ward, some of you know, um, I did an internship one summer with him. I was all excited. I was thinking how great ministry was going to be, serving youth and having all these amazing opportunities. And you know what my first job was? It was cleaning toilets. Cleaning toilets. Every single week, my job was to clean the toilets in preparation for the meeting. But that taught me like what it is to serve. It taught me that ministry is not all about the limelight. And listen, you can't, you don't go to the bottom so you can get to the top. You go to the bottom because that's where Jesus is. That's where his ministry is going on. And you go to the bottom because you want to be like your Savior and you want to be with your Savior. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to 
to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's either do the commands of Jesus or not. But let's not say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, like, we love you. Like, you're amazing. Thanks for everything. Like, see you next week. No, let's be real about the Lord. Let's be real about his work. Let's be real about being disciples who deny themselves, who take up their cross, and who follow Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we want to be disciples that are willing to serve Disciples that are willing to follow. Disciples that will lay it all down for you. And we want to be where you're at, God. In the tough places, and the rough places, we want to do ministry for you. We want to do ministry with you, God. Use us to shine light into the darkness. Use us to shine light into those places. Help us not to feel like we're above any task. May we serve just like you served, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you served us greatly. That everything you've asked of us, you have done. And you laid down your life for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Empower us by your Spirit. Every single person here, every single believer, empower us by your Spirit to be able to walk and follow after you, to be able to seek you, to be able to deny ourselves and consider the claims of Christ, to consider your truth better than anything. And do this for your glory, Lord, we ask. Amen.